0: on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life.
1: Lectures on the Politics of God and the Politics of Man Lecture 2 Introduction Part 2 The history of Christian thought and practice relating to the political sphere of life presents us with two contradictory ideals, both of which claim to be based on scripture. On the one hand, there are those who claim that Christianity is not a political faith, that essentially the life and message of Jesus Christ do not address the issue of politics, and therefore that the gospel does not apply to the nations politically. In other words, It does not apply to nations as nations, but only to nations as they are considered as collections of individuals. The message of the gospel is essentially individualistic. In this sense, there is no such thing as a Christian politician, only Christians who are also politicians. The Christian faith applies to these people as individuals and affects the way they live their own lives and therefore their personal witness is capable of having an indirect effect on the political process by modelling personal virtues that hopefully others, including politicians, will emulate in their own lives. This principle applies in the same way to those with the political franchise, so that it will affect, for example, the way they vote at political elections. But the gospel is not seen as addressing directly the issue of how politics should be done how nations should be ruled. In other words, how the state is to conduct its business. There are no political principles that can be applied directly to the theory of how the state should order its life. Although those who espouse this view claim that their views are biblical, this claim is based exclusively on an appeal to the New Testament. It does not take into account the teachings of the Old Testament The political virtues, ideals, and principles set forth in the Old Testament, although recognized as being directly applicable to Israel prior to the coming of Christ, are deemed to have become obsolete with the inauguration of the Christian era. The New Testament is believed to have replaced the political focus of the Old Testament with a focus that concentrates on the individual and on the church as an apolitical devotional institution. This understanding of the nature of the Christian faith as essentially apolitical was represented among Protestants by certain groups associated with the Radical Reformation and survives in the traditions of the pacifistic Anabaptists and the Protestant pietistic sects, which have borrowed heavily from Anabaptist theology. For example, according to the Anabaptist brethren who composed the Schleitheim Confession of 1527, and I quote, It will be observed that it is not appropriate for a Christian to serve as a magistrate because of these points. The government magistracy is according to the flesh, but the Christians is according to the spirit. Their houses and dwellings remain in this world, but the Christians are in heaven. Their citizenship is in this world, but the Christians' citizenship is in heaven. The weapons of their conflict and war are carnal and against the flesh only, but the Christians' weapons are spiritual, against the fortification of the devil. Unquote. Likewise, the Hutterite Peter Reidman said that, and I quote, No Christian is a ruler, and no ruler is a Christian. Unquote. Another good example of this perspective is a statement by Lord Hailsham that, and again I quote, the Christian religion itself, being concerned with grace and love, is, despite much that is written and asserted at the present time, very largely devoid of political or social doctrine. This is not so of the Old Testament, unquote. On the other hand, there are those who argue that Christianity does have a direct application to the political sphere that the state should be a Christian institution and that it should order its business in obedience to God as his servant and in accordance with political principles derived from Scripture. Those who espouse this ideal also claim that this is a biblical ideal, but their appeal to Scripture is inclusive of both Old and New Testaments. In seeking to understand what the New Testament says about how Christians are to relate to the political sphere of life, The Old Testament is believed to have an important role in providing the proper context for interpreting the New Testament. This understanding of the Christian faith as having a direct political relevance and application to modern life was represented among Protestants by the Magisterial Reformers. According to John Calvin, for example, and I quote, The Lord has not only testified that the office of magistrate is approved by and acceptable to him, but he also sets out its dignity with the most honourable titles and marvellously commends it to us, to mention a few. Since those who serve as magistrates are called gods, let no one think that their being so called is of slight importance, for it signifies that they have a mandate from God, have been invested with divine authority, and are wholly God's representatives, in a manner acting as his vice gerents. But Paul speaks much more clearly when he undertakes a just discussion of this matter, for he states both that power is an ordinance of God, and that there are no powers except those ordained of God. Further, that princes are ministers of God, for those doing good unto praise, for those doing evil avengers unto wrath. To this may be added the examples of holy men, of whom some possessed kingdoms, as David, Josiah, and Hezekiah, others lordships, as Joseph and Daniel, others civil rule among free people, as Moses, Joshua, and the judges. The Lord has declared his approval of their office. Unquote. Likewise, Heinrich Bullinger, in his treatise, A Brief Exposition of the One and Eternal Testament or Covenant of God, taught that, and again I quote, the judicial or civil laws provide rules for the maintenance of peace and public tranquility, for punishing the guilty, for waging war and repelling enemies, for the defence of liberty, of the oppressed, of widows, of orphans, and of the fatherland, and for the making of laws of justice and equity relating to the purchase, the loan, possessions, inheritance, and other legal subjects of this sort. Are not these things also included in that very condition of the covenant which prescribes integrity and commands that we walk in the presence of God? Furthermore, the saints consist of not only of spirit, but also of flesh. As long as they live on this earth, they do not entirely lay aside their human shape and totally turn into spirit. But also their laws are made to order external dealings among people in their social life. For these reasons, they need magistrates and the work of the civil law covering many subjects. What is more strange than the insanity that drives those who exclude the magistrate from the church of God, as if there were no need of his functions, or who consider his functions to be of the sort that cannot or ought not to be numbered among the holy and spiritual works of the people of God. Nevertheless, those deeds of Abraham which are truly judicial are praised by the Holy Spirit of God as among the first and most excellent works therefore that same abraham inasmuch as he was named the father of all believers by the apostle and called a friend of god prior to the law possesses a foremost place in the true church of christians he nevertheless exercised judicial powers the difference between these two positions can be summarized by saying that the one maintains that the institutional church and the state should be completely separate, a position described in Britain by the term disestablishmentarianism, while the other maintains that the church should be recognised by the state and the Christian religion established in law, which is described by the term anti-disestablishmentarianism. Those who reject establishment of the church argue that such a position is incompatible with the nature of the Christian faith. Underpinning this argument is the fact of the persecution of heretics by Christian states in the past. This critique of the religious persecutions that have taken place in the name of Christ is believed to demonstrate the incompatibility of the Christian virtues with those qualities deemed necessary for effective political rule. It is my belief, however, that this argument is profoundly mistaken. But it is not merely profoundly mistaken. Worse, it is an argument that will inevitably lead, and has already led, to the denial in practice of the Great Commission, and indeed to the very antithesis of the Great Commission, namely, the decommissioning of the nations as Christian nations, and the inevitable recommissioning of idolatry as the religion of state that such a process entails although those who hold to this erroneous belief may be quite oblivious of such an outcome. The reason for this is that religious neutrality is impossible in any sphere of life. It is not possible, therefore, to engage in a-religious politics. Abraham Kuyper stated this truth in the well-known aphorism, and I quote, "'No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest.' and there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, There is no area of religious neutrality in the whole of creation. In everything we think, say and do, including what we think, say and do politically, we are either for Christ or against him. There is no middle way, no neutrality. But what about the persecutions? Does this mean that the persecution of non-believers and heretics in Christian states is acceptable? Nothing could be further from the truth. Such persecution is unacceptable, without any warrant in scripture and has no part in a biblically informed understanding of the role of the state. I therefore fully endorse criticism of the many religious persecutions that have taken place in the history of the church it is true that Protestants have also persecuted people for religious crimes that have no warrant in Scripture, that such persecutions have been not merely a tragic mistake but constitute a serious miscarriage of justice, and that reputed justification for such persecutions has been unbiblical. Nevertheless, I disagree with the philosophy underpinning the arguments of those who believe that these persecutions validate the complete separation of church and state. There is a difference between arguing for a separation of the powers of church and state and arguing for a complete separation of church and state. This is an important distinction. An argument for the separation of powers does not necessitate a complete separation of church and state. While a Christian view of the state that is consistent with the whole of Scripture necessitates a separation of powers, it must reject the complete separation of church and state. Why? The establishment of the Christian church necessarily involves recognition of the church as an independent public legal institution with its own sphere sovereignty, forming part of the societal structure of the nation. It is this recognition of the Church by the State that constitutes the establishment principle, not any formal act of establishment by the State. The Church of England as a whole, said Lord Hope of Craighead, and I quote, has no legal status or personality. There is no act of Parliament that purports to establish it as the Church of England. The relationship which the State has with the Church of England is one of recognition, not the devolution to it of any of the powers or functions of government. This is an important point for the perhaps inaptly named establishment principle, although the coronation service does speak of the Protestant reformed religion established by law. Properly speaking, the state does not and should not attempt to establish the church, for the state to do so would be presumptuous. Rather, The state recognises the church. Nevertheless, the ecclesiastical law of the Church of England is part of the law of the land. The law is one, said Augustus Uthwat. And I quote, But jurisdiction as to its enforcement is divided between the ecclesiastical courts and the temporal courts. Unquote. Disestablishment of the Christian faith, that is to say complete separation of church and state, denies in principle the notion that the church is an independent, public, legal institution with her own sphere sovereignty, forming part of the societal structure of the nation, thereby making the church merely one more private association among many, permitted, tolerated, but ultimately regulated by the state. The secular state acknowledges no sovereignty other than its own and is therefore in principle totalitarian in nature. Just as Rome accepted the various licensed mystery cults, provided they were subordinated to the political supremacy of Rome, so the modern secular state will accept the Church as long as she is prepared to subordinate herself to the political supremacy of the secular state by relinquishing her own sphere sovereignty. The denial of, or even failure to recognise, the independent public legal character that's to say the sphere sovereignty of the church, is a denial of the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ, and it was the denial of this sovereignty by Rome, and the assertion of it by Christians, that constituted the dispute between the early church and Rome, and led to the persecution of Christians for treason against Rome. In other words, the implications of a complete separation of church and state are that the Christian faith has no direct application to the political sphere and that the state has sovereignty over the church. The reason that complete separation of church and state necessarily involves subordination of the church to the state is that denial of the church's sphere sovereignty is implicitly a denial of God's sovereignty over society. But sovereignty is an inescapable concept. It is an attribute of deity. If sovereignty is denied as an attribute of God, or if the existence of God is denied, the concept of sovereignty does not disappear. Rather, it is attributed to someone or something else. Historically, what this means is that sovereignty is attributed to the state, either in the form of sacral rulers, such as the pharaohs and divine emperors, or in the form of sovereign secular states, Both these forms of human sovereignty are idolatrous and constitute rebellion against the divinely ordained social order revealed in scripture as the only sustainable basis for human freedom. I said previously that the implications of a complete separation of church and state are that the Christian faith has no direct application to the political sphere and that the state has sovereignty over the church. The operative word here is direct, since it is true that disestablishment of the Christian religion would not necessarily mean that Christians would be unable to exert any influence at all in the political realm. A commitment to the principle of disestablishment by Christians would mean, however, that they would be unable to argue consistently that the state is accountable to God and that it must submit to his law and kiss the sun that is to say, do homage to Jesus Christ, as the Bible commands the kings of the earth. The influence of Christians would be restricted to the effect of their personal witness generally on the culture of the nation, and to requesting the state to do their bidding, that is to say, lobbying, possibly on rational and moral grounds, depending on the general state of the nation and the degree of common grace operative, but only in the same way that any group of citizens, Satanists, homosexuals and paedophiles included, would be able to request special dispensations from the secular authorities. They would not be able, logically, to call the nation back to obedience to God's law as a basic principle of the state's legitimacy and authority, since this would imply establishment of the Christian faith and therefore establishment of the church. In constitutional terms, The state would be, to all intents and purposes, unaccountable to God. But the state would not be religiously neutral. Rather, the established religion would be secular humanism or some other religion, although this may not be readily perceived or acknowledged in the case of secular humanism. The situation would be similar to that faced by Christians in ancient Rome prior to the establishment of Christianity as the religion of state. This should not be taken to imply that the settlement between church and state reached under Constantine and Theodosius was without its problems and abuses, much less that it was an ideal form of establishment. It was a beginning, and it seems clear with hindsight just how problematic, indeed how inconsistent with scripture in many ways, that beginning was. Nevertheless, the failures of the Constantinian settlement, which were largely the failures of the Roman imperial system, with which the church was so closely identified, do not invalidate the establishment principle. But whereas the early church could espouse Christianity as a world-conquering faith and work towards the discipling of the nations to Christ, a commitment to the principle of disestablishment, that's to say complete separation of church and state, would render such a mission obsolete. In other words, a commitment to the principle of disestablishment of the church would mean that the Great Commission itself would become obsolete, since the Great Commission is not a command to disciple individuals from among or out of the nations, but rather a command first to disciple the nations as nations, second to baptise the nations, and third to teach God's law to the nations. The very principle underpinning the Great Commission is the establishment of Christianity as the religion of the nations as nations. The principle underpinning the idea of disestablishment of the Christian faith as the religion of state is a negation of the Great Commission. The principle of complete separation of church and state underpinned much of the radical reformation and is today being revived in the idea of principled pluralism. The basic premise behind principled pluralism is the idea that the state should not be a religious institution and therefore should not interfere with religious matters in any way. Instead, it should respect and preserve people's religious freedom. It is this idea that I wish to take issue with here because the kingdom of God is primarily a political order and therefore Christianity is primarily a political faith. Religion and politics cannot be separated. Politics, said Eugene Rosenstock Hussein, and I quote, being a process of realisation must be driven by the force of some ultimate faith, unquote. Politics is inevitably a religious enterprise. This is the case simply because human life is inevitably religious in nature. Consequently, Politics is as much under the leading of a faith commitment as any other sphere of human activity. The Dutch Christian philosopher and professor of law at the Free University of Amsterdam, Hermann D'Ujeveerd, stated the matter in the following way, and I quote, The state as such necessarily functions in the modal law sphere of faith. In its public communal manifestations, the body politic may recognise a God above it and above the entire world order, or it may deify itself or human reason, or again openly declare itself a self-sufficient etat athi, that's to say a godless state, which only appeals to the belief in a social ideal and in man's autartical power to realise it. But never can the state, as a temporal societal relationship, struggle free from the grasp of the sphere of faith, within which a higher will than its own has assigned a structural function to it. This is the astounding truth which must at least arouse every wavering mind from his dreams of political neutrality with respect to the life of faith. The state can be no more neutral in this respect than science. The political slogan of neutrality is as much under the leading of an attitude of faith, and as certainly originates from a basic religious commitment as any other political conviction. The question we must face, therefore, is not whether the state should be a religious institution, but rather which religion should be established as a religion of state. The state is inevitably a religious institution because man is by nature a religious being, created by God to serve and glorify his maker. In the state of sin, man has turned away from his creator and lord, and instead of seeking the meaning and purpose of life in God's revealed will for mankind, he seeks to find the meaning of life in something or someone else. The Bible calls this idolatry because it places some aspect of the created order, whether ideological or physical, in the place of God, who alone is the one in terms of whom ultimate meaning is to be sought. When the state rejects God as a source of its authority and power and the one who alone defines its purpose... It engages in idolatry. Men will either serve the God of the Bible or they will serve some idol of their own making. This is inevitable. Men may be unaware of their idolatry, but this does not mean they are not idolatrous. All of human life is religious and therefore politics is inevitably a religious enterprise. The state, therefore, may not be a Christian institution, but it will inevitably be a religious institution. A secular humanist state is a religious state no less than a Christian or a Muslim state. It will therefore serve some god of its own making, whether this is the ideal of democracy, socialism, any aspect of the created order, or indeed, as with the modern secular state, itself. In other words, it will engage in idolatry. The Bible condemns this. The state, no less than the church, must honour God and acknowledge his rights by ordering its work in accordance with his will, as this has been revealed in Scripture. Of course it is not the duty of the state to proclaim the Christian faith and compel people to believe the truth. The state has no authority or power from God to do this. The power of the state is the sword, coercion, and the use of force to compel belief is ineffective, since a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. The task of proclaiming the faith and discipling the nations, the Great Commission, is given to the church, and the means to be used is the preaching of the gospel. But this does not mean that the state must not order its work according to the light of God's word, that it must not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him in all that it does. How then is the state to serve God if it is not called to preach the gospel? The calling of the state is to administer public justice. If the state, as God's servant in this matter, is to do this properly, as the Apostle Paul clearly teaches in the New Testament, what constitutes the public justice that the state is called to uphold must be defined by God's law as this has been given to us in Scripture. And it is the duty of the state to uphold God's law as it relates to the sphere of public justice, even where those guilty of acts defined as criminal offences by that law believe action by the state in such matters to be a violation of their religious and civil liberties. In such cases, no one is persecuted for their beliefs. Rather, they are punished for their crimes. There is a difference between tolerating the beliefs of non-believers, heretics, and those who worship false gods, and tolerating criminal actions that are the fruit of such beliefs it is the latter only that the state must suppress by the use of the sword not false beliefs but what constitutes the crime that the state must suppress must be defined by god's word and therefore the state must look to god's law to guide it in its calling as the servant of god this means for example that muslims should not be permitted the religious freedom to establish Sharia law in the United Kingdom for their own Islamic communities, since this would be a fundamental denial of the Biblical principle that one law should be applicable to the entire nation, and the English common law principle that the law of the land should be in accord with the law of God, that, and I quote, any law is or of right ought to be according to the law of God, unquote. The state must enforce the common law of the land, which should be Christian law, even when Muslims believe this to be a denial of their religious freedom. This is a pertinent example of the problems posed by the doctrine of complete religious tolerance as understood by secular humanists. Both the fatwa condemning the author Salman Rushdie to death which led to criminal acts being committed in the United Kingdom by British Muslims seeking to demonstrate their support for the fatwa, and the increasingly frequent cases of honour killings in the United Kingdom, demonstrate the naivety of the ideal of complete religious liberty. The state may not turn a blind eye to these religious crimes, and must use force to bring the perpetrators of such crimes to justice no doctrine of religious freedom or toleration should be permitted to interfere with the state's duty in this matter these are crimes and the state is authorized by god's law to use force in dealing with criminals this is not merely an old testament doctrine but a new testament doctrine also as the apostle paul teaches in romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 6 and 1 timothy chapter 1 verses 8 to 11 The state is called to administer public justice without regard to the person on religious or any other grounds. The state, therefore, must pursue public justice as this has been defined by the law of God. The state must go this far, but no further. It is my belief that in the past, Christian states have often gone far beyond their biblical mandate and engaged in the persecution of heretics, and with regard to this I again fully endorse criticism of such persecution. Nevertheless, the state is no less bound to obey God's law in its definition of crime and its responsibility to uphold public justice as defined by God's word. Therefore, the state must look to God's law as the standard that defines public justice. It must, in the entirety of its work, seek to conform itself to the precepts of God's law as it seeks to perform its duty. The state is every bit as much the servant of God as the Church, and therefore it is inevitably a religious institution. In our criticism of the persecutions that have taken place in the name of Christ, we must not lose sight of this fact. It is not the task of the state to persecute people for not believing the truth, or for believing error, nor is it the duty of the state, to abridge the liberty of non-believers on account of their disbelief but it is the duty of the state to punish people for their crimes and it is the duty of the state to define crime in terms of God's law of course not all law in scripture is law that should be enforced by the state that's to say statute law the Hebrew word Torah means instruction, doctrine as well as law Much law in scripture is given as instruction and guidance for the individual, the family and the church and we must be ever mindful not to confuse those laws given to the church with those given to the state. It is my belief that on many occasions the church has indeed confused these two and assumed that the state must enforce laws that were given to govern the church. This confusion was evident in the beliefs and practices not only of the medieval papacy but also, to a lesser extent, of the reformers and the Puritans as well. This is a confusion of the boundaries of these two different spheres. It is also my belief that principled pluralism confuses these two spheres of the state and the church, assuming that because the state may not administer church law, therefore the state has no duty to enforce God's law at all. This is equally mistaken. Where the Bible gives law that relates to the magistrate's duty to administer public justice, the state must take notice and order its work in accordance with Scripture. We must not forget also that it is not only Christians who have engaged in religious persecutions and murdered men for their beliefs. The record of secular humanist states is worse, not better, than that of Christian states modern secular states have slaughtered more innocent people in pursuit of their secular humanist utopias than any other form of religious establishment in history. While it is true that much violence has been committed in the name of Christianity and Islam throughout history, it is secular humanism that has proved to be the most intolerant and persecuting of all religions. It has been estimated that the total number of people killed by state repression between 30 BC and 1900 AD, excluding war, was 133 million, while the number killed by state repression from 1900 to 1987, again excluding war, was 170 million. The campaign of terror unleashed on the world by the French Revolution, that's to say the religion of secular humanism, is a fire that has never ceased to burn in some part of the world since its inception, and has brought and still brings untold misery and suffering to countless people. This religion of secular humanism has its own doctrines of orthodoxy, political correctness, for example, and secular states have persecuted fiercely those who have refused to submit to their secular belief systems. Nazism and Stalinism, said Denis de Rougemont, and I quote, have each had a pope and infallibility, hierarchies, orders, forms of worship, and dogmas, an inquisition more effective than the other, that's to say the Roman Catholic inquisitions, in the eradication of heresy from the uttermost recesses of the cerebellum. Unquote. Aldous Huxley stated the problem well, and I quote, In medieval and early modern Christendom, the situation of sorcerers and their clients was almost precisely analogous to that of the Jews under Hitler, capitalists under Stalin, communists and fellow travellers in the United States. They were regarded as the agents of a foreign power, unpatriotic at best, and, at the worst, traitors, heretics, enemies of the people. Death was the penalty meted out to these metaphysical quizzlings of the past, and, in most parts of the contemporary world, death is the penalty which awaits the political and secular devil-worshippers known here as Reds, there as Reactionaries. In the briefly liberal 19th century, men like Michelet found it difficult not merely to forgive, but even to understand the savagery with which sorcerers had once been treated. Too hard on the past, they were at the same time too complacent about their present, and far too optimistic in regard to the future, to us. There were rationalists who fondly imagined that the decay of traditional religion would put an end to such devilries as the persecution of heretics, the torture and burning of witches. But looking back and up from our vantage point on the descending road of modern history, we now see that all the evils of religion can flourish without any belief in the supernatural, that convinced materialists are ready to worship their own jerry-built creations as though they were the absolute, and that self-styled humanists will persecute their adversaries with all the zeal of inquisitors exterminating the devotees of a personal and transcendent Satan. Such behaviour patterns antedate and outlive the beliefs which, at any given moment, seem to motivate them. Few people now believe in the devil, But very many enjoy behaving as their ancestors behaved when the fiend was a reality as unquestionable as his opposite number. In order to justify their behaviour, they turned their theories into dogmas, their bylaws into first principles, their political bosses into gods, and all those who disagree with them into incarnate devils. This idolatrous transformation of the relative into the absolute and the all-too-human into the divine, makes it possible for them to indulge their ugliest passions with a clear conscience, and in the certainty that they are working for the highest good. And when the current beliefs come, in their turn, to look silly, a new set will be invented, so that the immemorial madness may continue to wear its customary mask of legality, idealism, and true religion." From about 1700 to the present day, all persecutions in the West have been secular and, one might say, humanistic. For us, radical evil now incarnates itself, not in sorcerers and magicians, for we like to think of ourselves as positivists, but in the representatives of some hated class or nation. The springs of action and the rationalisations have undergone a certain change, but the hatreds motivated And the ferocities justified are all too familiar. Other estimates put the number of people killed during the 20th century by secular states in pursuit of the religious ideals of secular humanism between 110 and 231 million. Within the period of a single century, secular humanist states have persecuted and put to death many times more people than those killed throughout history by Christian and Islamic states combined. The modern British state, under the dominating influence of secular humanism, is now increasingly anathematizing and persecuting those who refuse to kowtow to political correctness, and many Christian values and beliefs that conflict with secular ideals have already been subject to such intense criticism that adherence to these values and beliefs is treated as a kind of heresy that must be extirpated from the land by means of laws that criminalise those who refuse to accept the practice of political correctness. The 2004 Gender Recognition Act and the 2006 Racial and Religious Hatred Act are good examples of just such intolerance and the willingness on the part of secular humanists to use the full coercive power of the state to enforce their belief system on society and punish those who refuse to submit to the new orthodoxy. The abandonment of Christian values in the political sphere is not leading the nation towards more religious freedom at all, but rather towards a vicious type of secular humanist inquisition that has already shown itself to be relentless and utterly brutal in its persecution of those whom it considers to be heretics. It is true, of course, that the history of Christendom has been marred by the murder of heretics, but the freedoms that people in the West have rightly enjoyed for so long, and which they continue to proclaim so eagerly, despite increasing curtailment of individual freedom by the modern secular state, are not the product of secular humanism and its doctrine of complete religious liberty, that is to say total liberation from the law of God. They are rather the fruit produced by the Christian cultures of Protestant nations that have sought to apply the biblical doctrine of man's legitimate and limited freedom under God's law in the political sphere. This biblical doctrine of man's freedom under God's law is the source of all our true freedoms as opposed to mere license to commit crimes, which is what we increasingly have under the rule of secular humanism. And virtually all the blessings of our civilization, which secular humanists today wish to attribute to the abandonment of the Christian faith and the triumph of autonomous human reason. But these freedoms and blessings are the fruit of human reason held captive by the grace of God in Christ, and the ordering and development of our civilization under the influence of the gospel and law of God, not the religion of secular humanism we have yet to see secular humanism's martyrs die in their thousands that others might be free to worship God according to their consciences. These freedoms are the fruit of a Christian civilization, and of the witness of Christian martyrs who have died in their thousands throughout the Christian centuries, including those who died for their commitment to the magisterial reformation. While condemning the unjust and murderous persecution of heretics by Christians in the past, we must not lose sight of the benefits that Christendom has brought to mankind. Islam offers no freedom for non-Muslims, Christians included, despite the fact that much more has been made of the status of so-called people of the book in Islamic states than can be justified historically. And it is becoming increasingly evident with the passing of legislation aimed at suppressing Christian values and beliefs by modern Western states that secular humanism, once it has reached full maturity in terms of its fundamental principle of unbelief, that is to say, once its own brand of fundamentalism has become institutionally dominant in the form of a totalitarian state, will oppose in theory and in practice everything that Christianity stands for and offer no more freedom to Christians than Islam does. The persecution of heretics by the Church and by Christian states for beliefs and practices that are not defined as crimes by god's law is unjust and any attempt to justify such persecutions on historical theological or any other grounds is morally perverse but it would be no less perverse to cast off the countless benefits of the establishment of the christian faith as the religion of state because of the mistakes of previous generations of christians by adopting a secular political ideology since the fruit of the latter For example, the secular humanist witch-hunts and persecutions will prove, and indeed have already proved, to be far worse than the persecution of heretics in Christendom, and the benefits will be non-existent. The corrective to abuse is never disuse, but proper use. We are called to confront our generation with the gospel of God. We must also acknowledge the errors of the past. But we must equally lay before men and nations the claims of God as the only hope of a remedy for those errors. The Christian faith is a public truth, not a devotional mystery cult. It applies to the whole life of man. The gospel of God, the good news of salvation from sin through the merit of Christ's life, death and resurrection, requires us to call all men everywhere to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ in faith and obedience to his law. And this means inevitably also that the state must bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to his word, and order its work in accordance with his will, as this has been revealed in Scripture. End of Lecture 2 and End of the Introduction
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and his kingdom extended from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.